Professor Bryn Brown's research shows that vulnerability fosters good emotional and mental health. It is a sign of courage. We become more resilient and brave when we embrace who we truly are and what we are feeling. The Vulnerable Scientist Podcast is a space for scientists to tell their honest and authentic stories. I am your host, Saranya Kerry, who happens to be a scientist, informal science communicator, and I help scientists create personal websites. If you want to support this show, go to www.patreon.com slash the vulnerable scientist. You can also follow this podcast on all social media platforms at TV Scientist Pod. Welcome to another episode of the Vulnerable Scientist Podcast. And on this episode, uh, this is a repurposed episode from the science media interviews that we've, we've been doing. And this guest is called Verena Ras. Verena Ras has a very incredible story that you might want to listen through. And also, just to make you know that the person who is interviewing Verena Ras is Dennis Werner from Planet Wizard Africa. And I was also present in the interview. Maybe you'll hear me at the last portion of the podcast. And there isn't much that has been changed from this. There isn't much editing that has been done. And that was intentional because I love what comes uh, with the real conversations. Hi, I am Verena Ras. I am currently a bioinformatics training and outreach coordinator with a, an organization called HTA Bionet. It's a non-profit organization, and I'm currently based at the University of Cape Town. Um, but in parallel to that, I do also, well, I am also registered as a PhD student at the University of the Western Cape, um, where I wear a slightly different hat. Um, with HJ Bionet, I do a lot of bioinformatics training, but with my PhD, I'm actually doing a lot of marine biology, genetics, and taxonomy. Um, so two slightly different hats, um, but they've they've kind of started to become very interrelated um, over the last few years, which has been quite exciting for me. And it's, a, it's an encouragement to us because we're always so focused on doing one thing. But here yeah, you are doing... <laughs> Two or more complex things. So <laughs> that's something for us to think about. So yeah, no, uh, it's not easy, but yeah, I've been managing to make it work over the last few years. Yeah, you know, it shows that uh, the human brain is really capable of doing a lot. So uh, let's go to your background because we'd like to learn mm-hmm. from you how you, you got to to where you are currently. You know, from early education. So I'll just do the stages from early education, you know, to maybe high school, campus. So, but we'll just start with uh, how was the experience with the early education as a child? Sure, sure. So um, for me, I kind of bounced around primary schools um, quite, quite a lot. I went to four different primary schools, um, but I went to two schools on the Cape Flats. So I was always in Cape Town. I also did my high schooling year um, right in Cape Town, so I never left Cape Town. Um, and once I matriculated, I moved to the University of the Western Cape where I did my undergrad. Um, and my undergrad was very interdisciplinary, so I did an undergraduate um, degree in conservation biology, actually. Um, and just via that degree and everything that was required for my then mini thesis, I started to do a lot of you know, genetics, 
geographical information systems, a lot of bias statistics. Um, and so that's why I kind of think of myself as a little bit of a jack of all trades, <laughs> but a master of none yet. Um, but I think of myself as a bit of a jack of all trades um, when it comes to science. But that's just owing to just, you know, my educational background, my formal training um, and also informal training, I guess, with, with volunteer you know, groups that I've worked with and so on. Um, I think it's all contributed to, to you know, what I've become as a scientist um, and as a trainer, especially as well. Um, but very standard, very standard schooling. Um, I did my schooling in the standard amount of time, nothing special. Um, I wouldn't say I was even a special student, to be fairly honest. I was fairly average, if I can be, be blunt. Um, definitely not at the top of the crop, very much right in the middle. Um, very mediocre in many ways as well. But I think that... Um, yeah, I've grown over over the years, of course. You know, to be fair, uh, a lot of us find themselves in that middle average group, <laughs> especially in the early stages of education. So yeah, which is quite odd, right? I think a lot yeah. of scientists, more of us, were sort of average rather than exceptional in our schooling. Yeah, that's where we a lot of us started, didn't we? So how did you end up choosing science? So for me, it was a very, very early decision. Um, I think when I tell people this, they, they kind of think I'm, I'm not being too truthful, but I kind of decided that I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was about nine years old. Um, and I remember it very specifically because it was just in a like an epiphany. I just kind of went, you know, this is what I want to do. This is what I enjoy. This is what I love. I love animals. I love nature. And more than anything, I love the ocean. Um, and I think that love was sort of also um, fostered by the fact that my dad, you know, was at the beach all the time. He took us to the beach all the time. He loved fishing. He loved crayfishing. Um, and so he would always take us along with him. And I think it's just that sort of natural love that started to grow for nature. Um, and from very early on, I spent a lot more time outdoors than I did indoors. Um yeah, I was always that, that girl playing in the trees or playing in the sand outside or scratching around, you know, picking up bugs. And I guess that from that age, I think everybody kind of knew that I was going to be, you know, I, I would go into science in some way. Um, if it wasn't, you know, hardcore sciences, it would probably be teaching. So um, I think if I wasn't a scientist, I'd be a science teacher, to be fairly honest. Um, but I think science was always kind of end game for me from a very early age. Uh, for a lot of us, I think uh, our education system starts to converge at around undergraduate, you know, for different African countries. So maybe you can start with the, the undergraduate uh, level, how you navigated it, because that's usually where also a lot of us start to become self-aware and we start to realize, okay, this is the course I'm doing and things like that. So how was the experience for you for undergraduates? Yeah, so for me, undergraduate, my undergraduate experience was pretty rough. Um, I think I wasn't 100% sure of what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do science. I knew I wanted to do biology. But beyond that, I didn't really know too much. Um, my goal was always to do marine biology, but I was very open to, you know, wherever life kind of led. Um, but marine biology was always what I really wanted to do. And so I always kind of structured, I kind of structured my undergraduate courses around that. Um, being in biodiversity and conservation biology, to be fairly honest, it was so interdisciplinary, though, that I didn't really have to take courses from many other faculties um, with my undergraduate you know, degree. Just because I did biodiversity and conservation biology, we were all primed to do a lot of different things. 
So it was compulsory for me to do a bit of statistics. It was compulsory for me to do a bit of um, chemistry, biochemistry. It was compulsory to do, you know, plant physiology, animal physiology, zoology, biodiversity, um, more, more, more broadly, ecology. Um, and they, the, all of those different sort of fields were sort of mashed up into one sort of big degree. So for me, um, I kind of like that because I sort of started to see, you know, what kind of topics or domains I gravitated towards more. And for me, it kind of always was more, you know, numbers and data. Um, ironically, I was really bad at math during my undergrad. I had probably the lowest scores, but I really enjoyed it. It's just that the way that it was applied at the time didn't resonate with me. Um, but when I moved to honors, I went from almost failing math to getting, you know, A's in biostatistics, which kind of shocked me as well. But it was because I was applying it in a way that, um, you know, just resonated with me and the way my mind works. Um, so that was very interesting to me, how much I hated math in undergrad and how much I like numbers now is very, very interesting, to be fairly honest. Uh, but it's kind of taken me by surprise as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh a lot of us find some subjects uh, distasteful, especially in the early stages of our education. And <laughs> all along, <laughs> it's just about how they are applied. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, it definitely became like that for me. Yeah, I mean, I sucked at statistics. I'm not even going to lie. I was so bad in maths and stats. And now it's just, I think I'm just seeing it in a new light and I'm working with, you know, data that is the kind of stuff that I do. You know, I'm working with biological data sets, genetic data sets, and that's what I'm interested in. So when the math, you know, becomes a part of that, it becomes a lot easier, I think, to understand it, to see and visualize, rather than when you're doing, you know, traditional hardcore mathematics or, or physics especially. Sometimes it's not that easy to, to visualize what you're seeing on paper, but it becomes easier once you really apply it to something that you're interested in. So would you say that uh, being exposed to a lot of those disciplines helped you to actually make a choice on why you'd like to major? To be fairly honest, it had kind of the opposite effect. Um, what happened was I started to become interested in everything. Um, and that's why at the beginning I said kind of like a jack of all trades and a master of none because I really do like everything. And I think that is a, a blessing and a curse for the type of you know formal training that I had was just that I was exposed to so much. And so I was familiar with so much and then I became interested in so much. So you know, it was actually very difficult for me navigating from that point because even when I went from my honours to my master's and from my master's to my PhD, um, there was so much that I wanted to do and I think that sometimes holds me back a little bit. It's just, I want to do so much and I want to learn so much and I want to apply so much, but really you can't do everything all of the time. Um, and so it, it actually had a, the opposite effect that, you know, I liked everything, but silver lining was that I also then was able to integrate in many different environments um, because I had you know a bit of knowledge of everything and I was also open to anything it meant that I had a very weird career path you know I was literally open to accepting any any type of position if I was going to be a window washer I would have been a window washer I would have just been the best window washer there was and that's just kind of how I approach things so my career rather than me directing it for me personally it kind of grew organically from just experience to experience you know, just being open to positions it kind of just led from one thing to the other for me so for me my career has been very organic it, it's been much less directed um, than I think a lot of people think 
it's a unique path because you were able to get an experience from so many fields and it also makes you a unique scientist because <laughs> you don't think one dimensional you have a lot to, <laughs> to borrow from uh how was the transition from undergraduate to postgraduate for you it was difficult at first um i think it was difficult in the sense that in a way i had a lot more freedom I'm about my time about you know the types of courses that i took um where i was dedicated time i had a lot of autonomy with that and i also you know could for the first time choose what i wanted to do a little mini thesis on with my honors which then obviously grew to a full thesis with my masters but i was very much in the direct seat for that and that for me was very different because in undergrad you kind of just trained to follow the rules you know um you need to tick boxes <laughs> you have to submit x amount of essays that follow x format um but with postgrad i our postgraduate um sort of was organized in such a way that a lot of it was on you it was very autonomous if you didn't want to do something you didn't do it and you missed out and they moved on um undergrad very much was like that too but with honors it was just it was very different and you were very much tested into the real world um because we were the you know all day every day I was there on the weekend <laughs> i had my first exposure to proper proper lab work um i had been doing lab work throughout undergrad but that was my first time fully on my own i was designing my first experiments you know optimizing studies and protocols and it was my first experience really taking ownership of that and i think that was scary but in a weird way it, it's actually what made me realize that science was where i was happiest and what i wanted to do because i also came into my own um so i'm i don't do well in boxes and i realized that with my undergrad to be honest i think academically i was the weakest student coming into my postgraduate studies from the whole cohort i was at the bottom um and by the end of it I was one of the top students and so I always like to tell people that because it doesn't matter where you start um it just it, it matters what what you do you know once you get started um and I very much love by those principles and I did that in honors you know I gave myself a fresh start I said you know you sucked in honors you did so poorly you suffered you know you had a lot of mental you know issues and it was just hard on you but have honors be a clean slate and you know my professors at the time you know i i did know a lot of them in undergrad but i saw them in postgrad as well and they kind of did the clean slate thing with me you know they forgot about how poorly i performed in undergrad and because of that just that clean slate was really amazing for me because then you know i come loud in my honors coming from you know almost failing undergrad so you know that doesn't happen very often and it just showed me that once i i things that I want to do and I apply it in the way that I want to apply it and the way that resonates with me the way I understand it I'm not actually as dumb as I thought <laughs> it, 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 it you know we bring up an interesting point of how you know we 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 lecture our students and how the education system is set up like what I'm getting is that for you that freedom is what you really needed to come to your own and yeah. you know graduate and below is really structured where right? you have to do what the system says but i think uh, it's 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 the, it's the beauty of postgraduate that you really get to to own the research that you're doing and you know set your own time schedules and maybe we should be preparing students for that also because i've seen the opposite where people really excel when the system is rigid and then they're given the freedom <laughs> they just fall away but yeah, anyway, I, mean, i i totally agree and i think that's also why i kind of am quite different as a trainer and as a teacher than 
you know my trainers and teachers were a lot of the time were a lot more flexible I'm a lot more understanding of you know if you can't learn it in the way that I'm teaching it you know you're just not going to be able to learn it and so I need to learn to teach a different way and people don't often look at education in that way it's kind of my way or the highway but I think as soon as you stop doing that students excel and they surprise you and some of the weaker students will become some of the strongest students really really quickly if you just realize that as a trainer you know you might not be doing things the best way either um so it's it's it just it gave me a lot of perspective <laughs> and i think in our, in, in our country we have a problem of you know tutors being trained just to deliver the content it's more of content delivery and yeah. result not really looking yeah, at uh, yeah. You know how the students are learning, uh, which type of students they are, and things like that. So it's encouraging that we have a tutor who looks at you know the bigger perspective. Humans can never all, all be the same, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So let's now that we are at postgraduate level, we can talk about some of the research that you've done. Yeah, sure. So um, a lot of my my own research, my my own personal research for my for my studies. Um, has predominantly been in marine biology, like I've mentioned. Um, so I think from honors, my masters now with my PhD, it's been very much rooted in marine biology, um, but also very much in taxonomy. So I look at naming and describing species, um, and now with my PhD, I'm I'm sort of going um, and looking at species connectivity in terms of the genetics along the West African coast, hopefully also the East African coast eventually. Um, but we're looking at species connectivity. We're looking at a lot of the population biology, the ecology, um, and also trying to draw bigger, you know, sort of pictures and, and conclusions from that in terms of, you know, evolution of these metazoan species. Um, and what's been interesting for me now is now that I'm working in bioinformatics, I've actually started to um, sort of, you know, incorporate bioinformatics into my work as well. And so now I've, I've started um, a whole genome sequencing project where hopefully. you know I hope to contribute to our sort of understanding of metazoan evolution um because jellyfish are so understudied you know there aren't many genomes and the more genomes that are published we're starting to see very interesting things in the genomes um things that haven't been seen in in the genomes of any other organism um and so I think that holds a lot of potential as well we see them um having a lot of potential for biomedical applications Um, we actually have groups now studying jellyfish for specifically, you know, pharmaceutical applications or biotechnology, biotechnological applications. Um, so, you know, using them to turn them into products, they're being turned into protein shakes, they're being turned into food. Um, they're being farmed in in a lot more places in the world now. Um, and when I started studying jellyfish, that wasn't really the norm, really. That was about 10 years ago. Um, that wasn't really the norm, you know. Nobody really worried with jellyfish. There was a few of us doing it, and it's it's already grown and exploded um, over the last decade alone. So that's that's been interesting for me to see, you know, going from you know 50 people over here doing jellyfish to like 500. That that's been nice to see, just the natural progression um, as we learn more about you know species diversity on the planet as well. It's nice to see how people's focuses are kind of shifting um, from, you know, the obviously the big sort of keystone taxa to the not so keystone, smaller things that you didn't know mattered so much. So that that's been quite nice for me to see. And you know, I think genetics are, uh, you know, the foundation of humanity, really, and all living creatures. So the more we study genetics, the more we'll be able to unravel the mysteries that we are seeing currently. 
when you talk about application uh, as a pharmacist I'm really interested because you know drugs have always had that one big thing against them called side effects yeah but if you can be able to design a drug specifically for someone <laughs> just for you I think it would be it would be the next step because a lot of drugs again they work but you know the side effects are just too much for patients yeah it's just too much anyway yeah, uh, <laughs> something I've thought about I've always heard that uh, you know we have never really discovered the full extent of the oceans and all the species out there so what are the interesting things that you found out in your research so for me um, one of the very very interesting things that I found out is that very recently we did um, sort of a global study on you know all of the eastern boundary current jellyfish along the world and what we found was that nearly all of them had a very similar pattern of evolution and I thought that was really interesting and the pattern of evolution kind of mimicked um, you know the big meteorological strike that happened I think it's in the Gulf of Mexico you know that formed the Gulf of Mexico and a kind of you know a lot of the evolution centered around that you know when that happened the oceans changed um And we actually see that mimicked in jellyfish speciation. So we saw, you know, an increase in the number of species that were out there. We saw them all follow similar patterns of, of divergence of speciation. But what was interesting was that although many follow that same pattern, not all of them do, um, even if they were in existence back then when, you know, all of this happened and, and they kind of originated around the same time, not all of them still follow, follow the same pattern, which is very interesting. Some of them, you know, it's, it's basically one species across the world. For other genera, it's multiple species in different places. Um, sometimes there are multiple species in, in one location. And, and that was something but that was interesting because we didn't expect that with jellyfish, that there would be so much diversity. And one of the, the other very interesting things we found is that there's a lot more diversity than we thought. There's a lot of crypses. Um, so when you look at the genetics, for example, what looks like one species can be 12. Um, there's a classic case of this um, genus called Aurelia. Aurelia was traditionally thought to be one species all across the world, almost. Um, and a scientist came along and started to look at them in more, in more detail. And with one study, I think they were split into nine. It's now grown to to, you know, six, I think about 12 to 16 known species and it just keeps on growing and that's because of the genetics that, are, that has been, you know, incorporated now. But then we see a lot of morphological plasticity where they either look the same everywhere or different everywhere. Um, so that's been very interesting and, and we are starting to see that it actually mimics a lot of um, the environments that they are in. And we're trying to now sort of start to build more elaborative models where we can actually prove that and say, you know, it is because the temperature here is X, Y, Z versus here that is actually causing them to speciate. Because the boundaries within the ocean is obviously not as simple as uh, on land. Um, you know, the, the ocean is kind of homogenous um, on the surface, but very heterogeneous below the surface. Um, and then, you know, modeling species, you know, boundaries and things like that become very complicated. But that's what's been interesting is, you know, how little we know with what, with how much we still know. Um, so that's been really quite interesting over the last few years. So almost approaching that, you know, that time in the, I think it's the 1700s when they discovered electricity and it changed the world. In 2000, we discovered the internet to change the world. Yeah. I'm hoping genetics is not going to change the world like that. For the better, of course. Uh, you oh, for the better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
so uh i saw that you are you are doing a phd currently yeah so what is it about so my phd is looking at both species identities um along the west african coastline but also species connectivity i'm also trying to look at species boundaries um so seeing what level of mismatch do we have in terms of our own understanding at the moment um so we know that you know a series of species occur in you know xyz place um and traditionally we always thought that you know you only get one species per large marine ecosystem so my study is kind of investigating whether that's true it's probably not true um but we're trying to look at the level of mismatch between how many species we actually identify um versus how many we expected to see there um for that large marine ecosystem because it's going to tell us a lot about ecosystem you know dynamics it's going to tell us a lot about the population biology of the jellyfish um we're going to learn a lot about speciation and and possibly be able to tie that broader models hopefully um but then the other portion of of my study is also just looking at some of the population biology in detail of a couple of key species um and then also trying to build the reference genome um for one of the jellyfish that that we're looking at and so i want to build the reference genome not only to have the reference genome but also so that we have more genomes available when we do do any type of mapping in the future um but also with the hope that whatever pipeline i i come up with um as part of you know sort of assembling and annotating that genome can then be made open source so that other people can use it particularly people working with non-model organisms marine organisms and gelatinous um zooplankton in general so I'm hoping that that you know by doing a lot of this I'm also putting a lot of information about how to do this out there um a lot of you know jellyfish biologists taxonomists we all kind of traditionally have worked in a lot of silos and so what we do only is known to us <laughs> so I'm also hoping that um with my project I'm going to make a lot of things open source a lot of my methods and stuff like that so I'm just hoping that by doing that also it helps a lot of other groups see that you know maybe they they need less than they thought to actually do this kind of work because uh, we've been able to do it on on a very low budget at the moment and we've done a lot with the little that we've got and so I think it's it's useful to share um a lot of those experiences as well as the insights that we've been able to manage to get with you know that that those limited resources yeah it's good that you are making them open source and you're not telling people how they can get into what you're doing currently because we we definitely need to encourage the younger generation i've always given the example that a child who wants to be to be a musician has a lot of examples <laughs> but the yeah. child wants to be a scientist <laughs> it's a good example actually <laughs> not so much Anyway, this the other side of you know pursuing a science career that is uh, mental health. Yeah. And you know science science is a grind. You really have to, especially what you're doing it's your pioneers in a field so it's, it's it's not a guaranteed you know do this and you'll get the results. So how do you juggle that? Let's just start from undergraduate. How do you, do you juggle that balance between pursuing your studies and you know making sure that at least you're healthy and not mentally unstable? Yeah no so I'm going to say I didn't manage it well um I think I'm managing <laughs> a bit better now than I did back then but definitely with my undergrad my honors a lot of my masters um because I was kind of studying and working um at the same time a lot of the time I think my mental health just naturally suffered um I don't think that anything I could have done would have probably prevented that because I was just exhausted all the time and I was just taxed mentally 
Um, and I think that if I had gone back, I would have probably done things exactly the same way, which is sad to say, but it's, it's the honest truth. I would have still overworked myself. I would have still done more than I probably should um, in order to get to where I was now. But I think for me at the moment, where I've managed to get, you know, based on that sacrifice, the sacrifice kind of seems worth it. But I do see how I could have managed things a lot better back then. Um, I was depressed a lot of the time. I still get depressed often now. I think every scientist can attest to getting depressed quite quite a lot actually in our careers. And it's, it's for a lot of us, it's almost unavoidable because of the amount of pressure that we just naturally have on us. And not to say that other careers don't have the same level of pressure. They very much do. Um, but that's the point, right? We're all under so much pressure all of the time. And I think goalposts keep changing, especially in science. Um, you know, at first, you know, when you did a master's, you were very sought after. Now everyone has a master's. Now you have to do a PhD. And now that everyone's getting PhDs, now you have to do a postdoc. And <laughs> now you've really seen jobs asking for four to five postdocs before they'll hire you. So I think that is very difficult and mentally taxing. Um, but I think that we all kind of learn to deal with things in our own way. For me, what really helps is taking time out. Um, although that's the one thing I, I, I barely do. Um, because I just don't have that time to spare all the time. But one one key thing is just take time out. Because um, time out really it not just calms you down and eases your mind, but it gives you a lot of perspective. Um, and a lot of the time I find that when I do take some time out, the task that I've been battling with for two weeks takes me two hours to complete. And I think that's unanimous for, for a lot of scientists and for a lot of people in our industry environments. Um, but for me, the key thing has just been take a break. And also, I obviously like to go swimming. Um, so just going to the beach or just being, you know, taking a walk on the beach that, that kind of calms me down and eases my mind a lot and it has always done that um, so yeah, so I, I will be the first one to say I probably don't manage my stress and my mental health as well as I should um, but I think that now that I'm getting older I'm realizing how important it was to maybe have, you know managed and dealt with it better when I was younger so that by now I'm, I've, I've got my mechanisms in place, you know, when I do feel down and out or I'm, I'm too mentally taxed and I'm only now starting to find some of those methods that help me. So I'm, I think I'm a bit behind um, where a lot of other people are at my age. But I, I think to each his own, you know, everybody's got their own journey. But I'm also a big believer in seeking help. Um, so if you feel like you can't manage, it's because you probably cannot manage. And there's no shame in that. And there's no harm in admitting that either. Um, and so I feel like if you are feeling overwhelmed or mentally taxed, there's absolutely no problem with going and seeking medical attention because sometimes that is the only thing that helps. And I think it's important for us to not stigmatize that, but to also accept that sometimes we need a bit more help than we can give ourselves. It's, it's a tough pill to swallow, but it's, it's a pill we must swallow, I think, if we do struggle with our mental health. Indeed, it's a tough pill to swallow, just uh, especially, I think, for men. Uh, ladies form friendships easier, you know, they talk to their friends. But men, you have this culture of, you know, dying alone. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, that's why I think it's also important that it, it does get a bit more destigmatized, right? So that everybody is comfortable looking, you know, seeking for help um, and asking for help. That it's, there's no stigma around it. And I think, you know, a lot of groups have gone a long way with that now, recently. Um, but I definitely think there's still a long way to go. Yeah, and you also mentioned about, you know, the pressure that exists in science. And uh, honestly, I don't think it's going away. I think society will get to a point where everyone is a professor. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe we should discuss 
how exactly you should handle that pressure because it will always be that there will always be more people getting masters no phd's the job requirements will always be there so i always thought you know being in a field that interests you would make things slightly better because uh, you get to enjoy what you're doing <laughs> what do you yeah think? no so so for me yeah i i to be fairly honest i've never thought that being in africa would make things any easier um I think I've, I've been very fortunate, I must say, um, within my time in academia, to be exposed to, you know, a lot of a lot of African scientists and a lot of brilliant African scientists, and that made me feel more pressurized, right? Because I was like, oh my word, there's so many, there's so much brilliance like across the continent. Like, how do you stand out, and how do you persist in, you know, such such an environment with so much brilliance? Um, and that 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 to me was very difficult to grapple with because I always kind of felt like no matter what I did, I was not going to be as amazing as these people. Um, and a lot of these people have done more amazing things with less, you know, less resources than I had. And and how do you compete with that? But I very quickly realized that I was looking at it like it was a competition, and it's not. Um, I think everybody's starting point is very different. Everybody's opportunities throughout life is very different. And so what you accomplish is very different, but relative to your starting point, a lot of us accomplish big things, right? What might be big for you might not be big for me, but it's really big for you based on your starting point. And so I think when I started to look at life through that lens, I started to go, ah, but, you know, maybe I've not done that bad. And actually I've done that well considering where I started. And so did the other person next to me. Um, And so when I started to view things like that, it, it kind of, And I started to lift pressure and I also started to change the way I looked at my own skills because I must say when I entered Bionet, I felt very underskilled. Um, there were all these big, you know, data scientists and programs from computer science backgrounds and, and I was not that. And so that was very difficult for me to find a way to fit in. But I just realized that, you know what, hey, <laughs> everyone has their own strengths. Everyone has their own weaknesses. What I'm really strong in, a lot of programmers and coders are not. And what I'm not strong in, they are strong in. And if I look at it in the sense that they can complement me rather than compete with me, we can build something that's a lot bigger than all of us. Um, and so I've kind of just approached a lot of the things I've done at Bionet with that perspective. So if I couldn't do something, I didn't feel like a failure or felt less, I went, who can do it? And will they contribute to the project? And even if my contribution is finding other contributors, then... It's, it's a worthy contribution. Um, and I think just reframing life like that, it, it starts to, it stops being a race and it stops being a competition and it starts being a partnership. Um, and so that's what I've been focusing on is growing partnerships and not looking at any situation as me competing with somebody rather than, you know, us growing together and making each other better and being able to learn from each other. And once I started doing that, I just saw my development shoot through the roof um, overall across the board, both personal, emotional, and also um, in terms of my academia. And you know, you mentioned being a, not the brightest student, so I think your coping mechanism is, is the most robust <laughs> of all students. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think everything in my life has kind of you know culminated in in the way that I think now but yeah I think maybe being a weaker student has given me a lot of different perspective because I do think that if I was on top all of the time on top of my game getting A's all the time getting the scholarships the sponsorships that maybe I wouldn't have this way of thinking 
um, and I see how much it's helped me um, just understand people's personal situations when we are in a work situation and how, you know, just being understanding just inherently of the personal situation and just adapting the, the simplest things that you do, even just the way you conduct meetings, you know, some simple things actually impact their lives in a big way. And I don't think I'd be able to do that if I didn't struggle a lot, <laughs> you know, throughout my life. And maybe we should incorporate that into our education system because it is so competitive-based. Making that transition from competition into partnerships, not everyone does that, honestly. And uh, that's but also, we're, we're not reared to, right? Yeah. We're not reared to, to think of the person next year as a partner. You're kind of with the education system wanting to just get good marks and do better than the person sitting next to you because then you're excellent. Um, and I think that's a very big disservice that the current system does to us because like you're looking at the person next to you as a competitor rather than somebody who's on the same learning journey with you um, and who's probably feeling the same way about you, right? And I think that that's where our, our system fails us quite a lot is that it's more about being better than the other person rather than just being your best self. Um, and yeah, I think if we re- if we just sort of, sort of stop with, you know, <laughs> the A students and the grading and blah, 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 blah. Like, I think a lot more average students would actually start to shine. Yeah, yeah indeed. Uh, how, now, I'm also interested in how you made that transition from undergraduate to postgraduate because it's surely a big uh, block or, or a barrier for a lot of students. They, they, they just don't... Everything is so well arranged from early education all the way to undergraduate. Then from there, it's just blank. So how did you manage that? Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, postgrad was very much unfamiliar territory. I, I also didn't have anyone to chat about it, um, to just ask the experiences. So that for me was very difficult. And I think the way that I navigated it was just one day at a time. I, o- I always just told myself just one day at a time, one class at a time, one assignment at a time. And to not get overwhelmed, I just kept repeating and sort of telling myself, don't get overwhelmed because when you get overwhelmed, you make bad decisions. Um, So I always just told myself, you know, one class at a time, one assignment at a time, you know, one course at a time. But what I did also try to actively do was to actually form, you know, a few friendships as well, a few good friendships um, during my postgraduate studies. And that helped me navigate everything quite a lot, to be fairly honest, because then there was a support system and a support mechanism. And I think I'm lucky um, with my formal training to come from a department where it was a lot like a family and I don't think a lot of academics can say that but I was very lucky in that our department focuses a lot on creating a very sort of friendly very inclusive atmosphere um, I mean to the point where you know our offices you know where the students sit are right next to where the professors sit so there's absolutely no demarcation of you know status or anything like that we all you know had tea together lunch together um, and they very much did a lot of work in trying to foster a bit of a community spirit. So we did a lot of, you know, field trips and things like that, whether big or small, um, just to, you know, just improve camaraderie, like between staff and students. And I think that that actually did wonders for, for a lot of us because we then did start to form real friendships. And I think friendships and just having you know, just one person that you can, you know, confide in when you're having a bad day, that was, I think, the biggest the biggest form of relief um, at that point in time. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the next hurdle usually after postgraduate is careers. Mm. Yeah, so how did you get that first career? 
Yeah, so I've been working for a long time. Like I said earlier on, like I was willing to take anything. Um, I'm still like that. Um, whatever opportunity presented itself, I kind of went for it and I see where it's just kind of saw where it went. Um, so I got my first job at about 18 or 19 working in retail. Um, I worked at a clothing store and I did, you know, clothing sales and I did jewelry and cell phone sales and contracts and things like that. So so really much a retail-based um, position. But then moving on from that, I worked there for quite quite a couple of years during my undergrad. Um, once I hit postgrad, I was given a few opportunities within the department to either obviously tutor some courses or act as a TA um, or act as a lab demonstrator. <clears throat> and I took all of those opportunities. So I did a lot of those jobs in parallel. And that kind of grew, you know, organically to other positions within the department at the time. So I was a course coordinator um, for a year or two. Um, and then I was a lecturer for a year as well. I lectured, you know, undergrad biology. And I did all of that um, before I even finished my master's. Um, and then during my final year of my master's, something possessed me and I took an internship. And I <laughs> did an internship for about a year and a couple of months. Um, with the National Research Foundation here in South Africa and I was based um, at Ezekiel Museums, which is the Ezekiel South African Museums, um, which is also here in Cape Town. And I I was in a dungeon all day doing like hardcore taxonomy. Um, So I was just working in the collections and it was the best job, to be fairly honest. Um, You felt like such a real little scientist, (laughs) you know, and I got to see so many awesome things. I was in a museum, so I got to, you know, interact, really interact with all of those crazy specimens that you know the public does not see um and so that was very exciting for me after that i worked as an administrator a departmental administrator for physics group um the inter-university um institute for for data intensive astronomy study idea um, that was based it was a dual sort of position between the University of Cape Town and the University of the Western Cape and I also did that for about a year so I was working with a whole bunch of astrophysicists um, just working in admin development outreach and so I was the PA to um, one of the directors for developmental outreach and so I just kind of helped her with all of our sort of outreach activities and stuff like that and did some budget management and then after that <laughs> I joined HDA Pioneer um, we have now been for the last four, four or five years, um, and I joined them as a as a bioinformatics training coordinator. So absolutely an uncoordinated career in life, if I can say that. But you know, it worked. <laughs> Something uh, maybe it's 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 it, 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 it comes from the you know the education that you got. Uh, a lot of you know graduates think that just because I've done this course, uh, I can't do a certain job. Just because yeah. I've done, yeah. But you know, for you, you took everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, so when I tell people I've done a million different things, and I mean these, are, I'm just counting my my formal like jobs, my full time jobs. I'm not counting my part time jobs or the things I did in between. Uh, there are lots of things I did in between as well, like little outreach things, handing out flyers, like whatever I could take. I really mean it, like whatever I could take, I could get. Um, like and I, I feel like it's benefited me because I never kind of feel like I can't walk into a position and apply myself. Um, I never feel like something is beyond me because it can always be learned, right? <laughs> if somebody can teach it, I can learn it. Um, and yeah, it's it's served me well so far. So definitely, mentorship has played a role in, in, in you know how you got, especially the the, the latter jobs. So. Uh, on the topic of mentorship, 
uh, do you think it should be better structured you know so that uh, the students really get someone specific to to follow and uh, what how, how, what do you think that that role could be you know i'm trying to, to frame this question sweetly uh, <laughs> the role of a mentor let's say yeah in, i mean in, in education i think mentorship has been very much downplayed um throughout academia the importance of it has been very much downplayed although we all understand the importance of mentorship we all have a mentor in some type of way a professor or a supervisor who you know does some type of mentorship with us um but i don't think it's very formalized in the undergraduate system especially and i think there's room for that um now i know it's 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 not going to be organic if you say you know you must mentor this person but i do think the structures can be put in place where people can say hey you know i am interested in mentoring i'm only a third year student but i'm going to mentor you know first year and be their buddy on campus i think there's lots of room for that and i think there might be sort of micro programs that exist within universities so at at my university where i study um at university of the western cape for example they've got this buddy program which is a a, a mentorship program but it's specifically for math where a third year or an honor student would mentor a first year student and they would have structured meetups um the student can go to them at any point in time and say like I'm struggling with this equation you know I just I need a bit of help and they can arrange a meetup and I always thought that was quite nice and I always wondered why that didn't extend across the board um because I feel like a lot of people would sign up and say yes I'm willing to be a mentor and a lot of first years would say I need a mentor um and so I feel like there's no there's not any strong mechanism like that across any institution I've ever been at although there are some programs you know some small programs here or there or, you know one department does it or one faculty does it but i don't think it's unanimous and it's not something that's really focused on um at least at least not in my experience in the places that that, that i've been in it's not focused on but i think there is a lot of room to improve that because i do know that when you do have a mentor you tend to go a lot further a lot faster not just um because they might be giving you help or guidance but just to have that person to springboard ideas off of who possibly has been where you are um that is very important and it's invaluable um just having somebody to say you know but I've been in that situation and this is how I navigated it this is how I got through it you know or I haven't been in that situation but I've been in a similar situation and this is how I navigated it it just makes you feel like all's not lost and sometimes it can be you know the sort of you know cooks between you know I'm going to stay in this line of work or I'm going to leave or I'm going to stay and continue my studies I'm going to drop out um so I do definitely think that a lot more emphasis needs to be put on that yeah and I'm starting to see the untapped potential in it because you can imagine how much it could help solve this joblessness you know pandemic that you have created <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> anyway I think we're almost done time has moved really fast but there's a there's a this 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 topic that we can't really you know finish without talking about we've made a lot of progress in equality and you know making sure that men and women are on the same level uh i was just today discussing with a very old nurse she's retired i think she's 80 years old she was telling me that when she was had in the 1960s they they were not giving women contracts permanent jobs we're just doing contracts for i don't know 3 years and then you could renew and then you're paid after the 3 years not on a monthly basis yeah and then there's no pension and that was the government 
that was in the 1960s and you know even education where you've come from uh, it wasn't necessary for ladies like at the time my mother was growing up it wasn't necessary for her she was an anomaly because she was an education so we have come a long way but uh, I don't think we, 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 are, we are where we should be yet so maybe we can talk about how, if you've had any ex- unique experiences as a woman pursuing a, a science career Yeah, I mean, for me, and I think for maybe a lot of other women, I don't want to speak for other women, of course, I'll, I'll speak for myself. But for me, um, I think a very sort of complex issue does still exist in academia, and that is just that traditionally all of the jobs were male-dominated, and so many females within a space is, you know, the only female there, or one of maybe two females or three females. But you're usually in the minority Um, and I think that has always been difficult because it's not that you feel like you're in the minority a lot of the time, it's that others make you feel that way. Um, you feel like you're a woman in science and I think we need to stop feeling like we are women in science and we just need to feel like scientists. Um, and so I feel like one day when we don't have to do all these women in science movements anymore, that's when science has really transformed, right? When I'm just a scientist and I'm not a woman in science. Um, but it's still been very difficult and I think that we have come a long way. I, I can say from my personal experience, um, my experiences with, with men within the office has improved a lot over the years. Um, but I am still saddened by the fact that there are still a lot of experiences that I do have where I walked into the room and I was the only female there or one of the only females there or I was young or I looked young um, and so I was just not respected Um, you know, I remember comments from people saying, oh, your science is cute. <laughs> it's not cute, it's serious, it's science. Um, and, and, you know, you take those things with you and you kind of internalize it. And I think for a long time, I didn't want to communicate my science. When I did, I got a lot of stage fright. Um, I still feel like that. I, whenever I communicate my science, I always feel like there's going to be somebody who's going to do better than me. Um, and I think that's just how women are kind of made to feel inherently in science. Um, but I, I do want to say it has improved a lot. I, I experience that less and less, but unfortunately still experience it. I still experience situations where I'm, you know, inadvertently told you're a woman, you don't belong here, or you're not going to be as good as the male counterpart. You're not as strong, or you're not as smart, you're not as witty. Um, and that happens way more often than I'd like to say, but it does happen. Um, but I think that to be fair, it happens to a lot of people. Um, and so I've also just been trying to just remember that, you know, whenever something is different within an environment, it's going to be shunned until it becomes the norm. Um, and it's only going to become the norm when more, more women go there and more women will only enter those careers if other women showcase them and show other women that, you know, we do belong here and we do well, actually. <laughs> we're not just part of the crew, we're leading the crew. Um, and so I think that lots of women need to stop being scared of positions of power because they're scared of how it's going to, you know, transcend onto everybody else um, or how other people are going to receive it. I think they just need to own their space, own their right to be there and be there, you know, take up space and let other women see you, let girls see you, let them see that, you know, these careers are not impossible and it's not just for men, it's for everyone. And I also want that to happen in a very organic way again. I don't want it to be forced, right? I want people to want that. Um, but I think you get people to want that when you as a female are also just excellent within the spaces that you're in, you know? 
definitely uh when when the young you know the young children the young girls can see scientists who are women you know they for them they won't think that that's a woman in science for them they'll think that it's normal and i think that's the the end goal yeah. for us for them to yeah. see that it's normal exactly exactly yeah and i think i we have seen some progress because uh, i think in my undergraduate class there there are more ladies <laughs> than, than gents <laughs> so it was never really a question of is this a lady or a gent it was always a we all in this together so that was a, that was a good thing and uh, now to you as a tutor i think you also have as tutors there's that responsibility to make sure we are not creating future thugs to use a crude word but we are teaching children to 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 look at other kids as you know just other human beings so that uh, if this other generation the mistakes they made they go with them <laughs> we get a new generation that you know just sees a human being as a human being but that now is upon is upon teachers again to make sure that you know children are being taught the right way yeah and I, and i actually like that you're saying that because i i i mean i very much feel like the way the reason why i'm the way that i am is because i was raised in an environment like that um even though it wasn't always accepted when we when i was growing up and i was really little um you know just still you know boys things were boys things and girls things were girls things and you didn't confuse the two Um but my parents were really amazing in the sense that you know if I was interested in something I could do it if I wanted to try something I could do it if I wanted to go play with the boys and kick ball play in the sand I could do it it was no problem right because I'm just a person just like they just a person and without realizing what they showed me was that I was equal um and I think a lot of women don't get that experience growing up and so they have to find the equality within themselves or within other people sometimes which is which is unfortunate but that sometimes you know what 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 can happen um but I think for me I was always just lucky to have parents that really just told me you can do anything and if the world tells you no <laughs> do it anyway um <laughs> was maybe not the best lesson to teach a child because I became very stubborn and hard-headed Um but maybe that's also why I ended up succeeding right because as, as much as the world told me no I went well two <laughs> cases So so I feel the, the 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 best way to you know end this would be to to tell you to to ask you about an advice that you give your younger self I don't know the age specifically but you know assuming that you could talk to your younger self which I know many people are in that stage and they don't know what the future holds What are some advice that you would give, you know, your younger self or that young person who wants to be a scientist? Yeah, so for me, um a lot of my life has actually been framed around education, either consciously or unconsciously, and so when I think about what I would tell my my younger self, um essentially I would just tell myself to relax. You know not everything is the end of the world. Failure is good. Failure is not bad. Failure teaches you what you don't know or don't know enough of rather than telling you that you cannot do it. So fail forward. Um never fail backward. And another thing I would tell myself is that learning is personal. And so when you're trying to learn from people who have standardized that you might not do as well when you're within those boxes. But once you, you know, blur the lines a little bit and you start to do your own thing, you might actually realize that you're a lot more intelligent than the system made you think. Um and I think that's very important for a lot of of young girls and just anyone um to remember that's coming from a difficult time in education and and in academia is that we we were we're walking on standardized grounds as unstandardized people. 
Um, and so as long as the grounds are standardized, we might not excel as much. But as soon as we start to personalize those grounds, you know, you see people like me come out of the woodworks who maybe wasn't, you know, so much of a failure as a scientist. Yeah, and I, I really like what you've said that, you know, it's a standardized grounds, but people are not standardized. And I also maybe you need to to tell people that there's a right way to fail and a wrong way yeah, to fail. Yeah, there is a right way to fail and that's very important actually. I've also always believed that the first thing you should teach children is how to fail rather than how to win. Um, but yeah, we kind of miss that. I think just as human beings, <laughs> it's, it's the natural inclination to want to win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we forget that because of fail. So, uh, I don't know if Sarah is around and she would like to say something. I've seen her in the uh, chat room. Hi, Banana. Hi, Denise. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> I'm so excited to see you coming into this interview and I just thought you should pop in. So, uh, I don't know. I have a question uh, that I'm curious about. What are you planning in the future for in your career or whatever you want to do after now? Yeah, so, I mean, um, pie in the sky for me is to, to actually do research my way. Um, so, in essence, I would like to maybe one day obtain my own research funding, maybe soon, even, you never know. Um, I would like to sort of start my own group where we can do, you know, cross-relational research. Um, because I think, you know, interdisciplinary research is where the future is. And so if I could start a group that, you know, encompasses what I do, which is a lot of marine biology, taxonomy, genetics, and, you know, merge that with a bit of bioinformatics and also biodiversity informatics, which is a, a really up-and-coming field now, all of a sudden. Not all of a sudden, but the people are talking about it a lot more now um, that I think informatics has, has sort of taken a spotlight across the world. Um, so if I could, you know, form a group that just does, you know, draw from all of those experiences and come together, um, I think that would be really fantastic because I can only imagine the kind of research that we'd be able to do, you know, and the type of insights that we get uh, when we all come together. And I think H.A. Bionet and a few others, you know, with the current DSI funding that they've, they've just received, is they, they'll be doing that in, in a sense, actually. They'll be kicking off that whole process. So, I mean, if I can slot into that process somehow, um, you know, and be, you know, key driver of that and a champion of that, then, then that's definitely what I would want. But more than anything, I'd also like to do some outreach, um, so, so some science communication, because I also think that is lacking for a lot of scientists. You know, the communication and the outreach part of things is very much lacking. And so if I could start a group that actually, you know, there's some funding dedicated to outreach and there's some funding dedicated to science communication and everything we do is going to have a communication and outreach component. I also think the impact that we'd have, the direct impact, you know, is going to be a lot higher than I think everyone that's working in silos and you know, you're just kind of posting on Twitter or Facebook or something just because you have to, you know, or you just want to, you know, drum up some presence. But if you can actually put funds into strategizing your psychom, I also think you you do a lot better with your research overall. Okay, great. Um, I I know this this space is just to help anyone might might come through your path or might want to do the things that you've done so far. And from the questions, I, I don't know if there's anything that you would want to add that you'd wish that you would have been asked or you would put out there for anyone who would watch this. 
Yeah, so th- there's not much that, I, that I'd like to add. Maybe the, the only final thing that I would like to say is that if you believe that you should do something, you should do it. You shouldn't allow anybody to make you feel like you shouldn't. You shouldn't allow the education system to make you feel like you can't. Uh, because it very much often does do that. So I think if you have a vision in your mind and you believe that you are meant to do something, want to do something, do it. Find ways to do it in your own way. Because, you know, the rigid structured way is not the only way to do anything. You know, going to university is not the only way to learn. <laughs> there are many ways to learn and there are many ways for you to gain the knowledge that you need to do what you want to do. So my biggest lesson is find a way to do it. You want to do something, put in the work, put in the hours, put in the effort, put in the research time. If you have the money, put in the money, but do what you have to do to do what you want to do and what you believe you want to do. And don't allow anyone externally to discourage that um, because it's very easy to do that for the right and the wrong reasons. Okay, thanks. Over to you, Denise. Okay. uh, Okay. You see the the good the beauty of teamwork. I think I'd forgotten a few questions, but now that you're there, you ask them. So the point about you know communicating the the science is is really important because uh, it gives people hope when you see that people are doing research, you know, to solve some of the problems that the world is facing. New bad news sells so much, and we could really use some good news every once in a while. But uh, I think that was that was all for me. Um, that was all for me thank you so much for being part of the interview no thank Uh, you so much as well for inviting me and having me and a really nice discussion actually thank you so much yeah we do we we do have we do have other publications i think we'll be last with sarah so that uh, we can invite you for more interviews and discuss you know more concepts about you know and and your science there's worldwide connections are how we, we all grow definitely I totally agree and I'd always be open to chatting with no problem at all from my side thanks for wonderful couple thank you for having me thank you so much Sarah and thank you Dennis and nice to see you both live and in the flesh 